3: hey this is annie and samantha and welcome to stepho never told you a production of iHeartRadio. radio samantha what is the biggest vehicle you have ever driven
2: i have driven a 15 passenger van Ooh. what was that like really annoying because i'm short So that means I have to be right under the wheel to get to the brakes. And a little nerve-wracking because I was also responsible for kids. Mm
3: -hmm. So
2: they were in the van. I'm like, oh, my God. It's okay. I'm okay. (laughs) But I got hang of it. It was not too bad.
3: Okay. Follow-up question. What's the longest car trip you've ever taken?
2: I actually, so I'm guessing this is it from Atlanta. No, from Athens, Georgia, all the way through Texas to Oklahoma.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty long one. Texas is huge.
2: <laughs> Texas, yes, and it was probably the longest uh, ride I had, and the most racist interaction with a cop that I've had.
3: Wow! Well,
2: second, no, it was top two. No, actually, it was the most racist. <laughs> I had other racist interactions, but this was the most racist.
3: That <laughs> fortunately, does not surprise me. Uh, right. Nothing against Texas because they can have it anywhere.
2: <laughs> right? They do not really like uh, brown people driving through small towns at 11pm mm. I think it was later maybe 2am
3: mm. yeah so I for someone who hates driving hilariously I learned I learned to do most of my driving in a suburban and not like you know like a nine seater suburban it was pretty surprisingly smooth though uh <laughs> But I did drive a U-Haul once, and I hated it. I hated it. I just, it was traffic during Atlanta, and I am so cheap. It was rush hour. I only rented it for one hour. So I had like a time limit in rush right. hour, and I was picking up this couch, and it was awful. <laughs> I, oh, just thinking about it. It was a lot. Very stressful. For the longest trip I've taken, I did, a friend and I, she did all the driving, but we went all the way over to California, up to Colorado, over to Chicago, back down through to get to Georgia. Mm. And it was actually a really nice trip. I thought by the end we might like hate each other for a little bit or something. It's a lot of time to spend with somebody and close counters, but.
2: It's fine, <laughs> right? Yeah, I had a friend with me, and I'm really glad I did. We when we went through Oklahoma, but when we left, we came through Arkansas back mm-hmm. to Georgia. Yeah, <laughs> don't recommend Arkansas. Sorry if y'all are from Arkansas. you've made enemies here (laughs) you've made enemies there's some like as a brown person when driving anywhere I am very overly cautious and there are two states that make me really nervous a lot of states obviously because like I said I had a really uh, racist encounter in Texas Um, I was speeding don't get me wrong I did wrong I wasn't even arguing that but the way he's I I don't know if it was a true sundown city and I didn't know what those were at that point in time but Mm -hmm. he screamed at me about coming through to never come through again and to uh remember my he didn't say remember my place but he just asked me why i was there and why would why would i be there and i was thinking what mm-hmm. i don't understand I'm like, and i would explain i'm driving to see friends in oklahoma and his response was so off out of left field because i wasn't arguing with him i i accepted it uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. awful like it wasn't a huge speeding ticket but i was definitely speeding a little bit and i was just kind of like this reaction is over the top and i am not confrontational especially when i don't even know it's coming it's one of those Mm -hmm. that i i am one of those that just freezes Mm -hmm. and stares like i don't know what's happening so when that happened i was like okay and texas is not as bad as that was it's not the on my list of the two of the states that i'm most scared of But Mm -hmm. arkansas is one one of them
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you have a bad experience it can can really stick with you. Well, the reason I wanted to bring all of this up is because, as you all know, I'm sure, lately there's been all of these news stories about the supply chain and shortages and why it's so bad. And we're going to return to talk about that in a future episode and kind of expand out how that impacts women. But one of the reasons is Uh, Here in the U.S., not enough truckers or truck drivers. There's a shortage in that. And I just remember when this episode came out, the numbers, the gap between male and female drivers was so significant. Um, And it's not an easy job and not easy on your body. (laughs) Like, it takes a lot of time. I have a friend who works in trucking. So it's just, I feel like there's a lot of things we have to talk about when we're talking about these shortages of, you know, (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's more than one thing happening here. But we did want to bring back this episode about women who, who are truckers in the trucking industry as this conversation is going on. So please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom
1: Never Told You from HouseStuffWorks.com. the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today's episode on women in trucking
4: has been requested by a number of listeners. It has. Yeah, we, we, I don't know if you guys are in cahoots. We've gotten a couple of emails from guys, trucker guys, trucker guys, requesting that we tackle this issue of basically like, where, where are the ladies in, in trucking? So
1: for instance, we wanted to share A letter from listener Greg, who wrote to us. I'm an old, broke-down, worn-out trucker. I wanted to use my time behind the wheel more productively, and I found your podcast. I've really appreciated your feminist viewpoint, as I don't really get the chance to see things from a female perspective very often. I work in an industry that, as I'm sure you are aware, is dominated by men. And as I was listening to your podcast on women and visual effects, it made me curious to hear your take on women and trucking. The trucking industry is essential to the country – Yet women are severely underrepresented among the ranks of professional drivers. Of course, women are certainly capable of performing the job, but it's extremely difficult for women to enter the industry. And the ones that do often face sexism that could be compared to the construction industry. So before we go on, Greg and all of the other truckers listening to this podcast, this episode is for you and Greg, by the way, you're spot on across the board. And also, I'm just so excited to imagine Greg finding stuff I've never told you and like listening to us like wax feminism as he's driving down the road. That's just really fun to think about.
4: Yeah. And we we love the idea and we love the suggestion. And I don't think, though, that we quite expected the picture to be so grim when we first dove into research.
1: Yeah. And it's and it's not. Grim in the way that you might expect, but we'll get into that. (laughs) Cliffhanger. Fasten your seatbelts, folks, uh, because we we will get into that um, later on. But first, we want to just give you an overview of the trucking industry, because, I mean, again, Greg, you're so right across the board. I mean, it's true that the trucking industry is so essential to the country, but there are very few women, not surprisingly. So... There are around 200,000 female truckers on the road. And that sounds like a lot. Sure. But that makes up just 6% of all
4: truck drivers, whereas there are 3 million fellas behind the wheel. Yeah. And that 6% figure for women is actually up slightly from 4.6% in 2010, according to the group Women in Trucking. And it's lower in the UK. Hey, UK listeners, Uh women make up just 1.2% of truckers over in the UK.
1: And we didn't find that much solid demographic information on women and trucking. But over at the site Real Women Trucking, which is run by a trucker named Desiree, uh, she says that most women who get into it are between 39 and 59 years old, which I thought was really interesting. But it's not necessarily a dream job um Erica Arvizu who's an admissions supervisor at the Dutson School of Trucking told NPR, quote, a lot of them are single women trying to support their families or just trying to help their partner because of the economy and everything just to survive.
4: Yeah, I mean, we read a lot, too. And this is in comments. And I know, you know, the refrain, like never read the comments, but the comments on articles about women and trucking are actually pretty enlightening for the most part. Um, because, And I say that because I'm so far removed from this industry. And so it's fascinating to get first person accounts. But a lot of the comments talk about how women who not all women, but a lot of the women who come to trucking, especially those who come later in life, are coming out of really bad circumstances um, because it's a relatively well-paying job for a lot of women who've either maybe just gotten out of prison, maybe women who've experienced homelessness. And not that that's not true for some of the guys, too. But trucking presents sort of a unique and positive opportunity for a lot of people. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a lifeline especially for GIs who have mm-hmm. just come home um, and again, it is a crucial industry to all of our day-to-day lives that we probably do not think about very often because imagine, truckers move 9.2 billion tons of freight or 70% of all U.S. freight every year and there still aren't Enough truck drivers. The American Trucking Association estimates that we're about 30,000 drivers short already. And by, I think it's 2020, that number will probably be up to 200,000 if recruitment doesn't pick up.
4: Yeah. And so as we've seen in many an industry over our national history, people turn to women to fill these traditionally male-dominated roles. And anecdotally, it's working. Um, There are a lot of people in the industry who say that more women are getting their trucking licenses and that the work environment is female-friendlier than ever before, although, as we will... Continue to discuss. Everything's relative. Yeah, that's not saying all that much. Yeah. Ellen Voy, who heads up the Women in Trucking Association that we've cited, uh, said that if we could double the percentage of women working in the trucking industry, we could solve the immediate qualified driver shortage, which is saying quite a lot. Yeah. I
1: mean, but keep in mind, listeners, as we're talking about this and citing sources, that there is... Um, A little bit of conflict between women in trucking and real women trucking, because real Mm -hmm. women trucking was started to, you know, give firsthand insight into what it's like being a woman in the trucking industry. And the woman who started it often talks about how women in trucking, which is more organized. Um it's a bigger organization. And it's more geared toward recruitment, right? Yeah. And it has more industry connections. And so real women trucking often claims that women in trucking is a little bit misleading and glosses over some of the details about um what life is like on the road. Um but women are also a safer bet for trucking companies, um, Derek Leathers, who is the COO of Werner Enterprises, told Bloomberg that women drivers perform better than men across the board. They tend to have fewer accidents, they have better inspections and fewer compliance issues.
4: Yeah, and Voy, who we decided, also told the BBC that women are so much better with the customers and the paperwork and the equipment with what with our tiny hands. Well, there's the equipment in there too. I know if she had just stopped at paperwork, I would have been like, "Oh, <laughs> Ellen." Yeah.
1: But why is there this scarcity of women in trucking? Well, I mean, from the get-go, it's major job requirements like life on the open road, hauling freight even just driving, are all masculine, gendered activities. Though, of course, some women have
4: gotten behind the wheel anyway. Yeah, and this is the part of the podcast where we have to talk about trailblazers. Yes, let's do it. And, and almost literally trailblazers. Uh-huh. They were the first people on these trails sometimes. Blazing them. Blaze, blazing them. So before there was truck driving, you had to have wagon driving. And so during the Western expansion in this country wives would typically take the reins so that their husbands could sit on the back or in the passenger seat with a gun. This is where we get the term riding shotgun. You're welcome. I know. I didn't know that before we researching for this episode. Yeah, I never I yelled shotgun a lot yeah. in high school. I, I never, still do. Still do. Yeah, I never understood where it came from. Never even really thought about it. And it's because of this, because women were holding the reins. Well, husband carried a shotgun, literally riding shotgun. Yeah. Um, and at this point, we have to talk about Mary
1: Fields, who was a freed slave who is better known by her nickname, Stagecoach Mary. Uh, she drove six horses and a mule as the U.S. Postal Service's second female hire and the first African-American postal worker in the U.S. And that happened in 1895
4: when, P.S., she was 60. Yeah, she worked through her seventies in this job, and was frequent. She even worked. She was like worked as as protection for nuns who yeah. moved west. Like she's a fascinating, fascinating figure. Um, but you can consider her an early truck driver. Yeah. Uh, during
1: World War One, though, big old leap uh, in 1919, Luella Bates became one of the first female commercial truck drivers, and certainly it's most well known. So if you look at histories of commercial truck driving, Luella Bates is usually cited as the very first lady. And she was hired by Wisconsin's four wheel drive factory, along with other women to fill positions left by men at war. So, again, a similar theme that we've heard before on the podcast. And I love her story because Bates took a shine to test driving and demonstrating the trucks and four wheel drive was like, hmm, we could make her the face of our company. So they sent her on this cross country marketing tour. And of course, the press described her as, quote, a pretty and petite woman pilot.
4: Well, yeah, because. As you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And you apparently cannot have an article about a woman in a male dominated job that doesn't discuss her appearance. And like, there's always this effort on the part of writers, it seems to assure readers that someone is still feminine. Like, don't worry, she's still pretty. And we see that in coverage through today.
1: Yeah. Yeah which is a little bit mind-boggling. Um, yeah, like, relax, okay? <laughs> like,
4: it's fine. I don't care what she looks like. I don't care if she paints her nails. It's cool. Yeah, I, I don't care. But, I mean, and it's something you hear echoed, though, in um, the actual industry. There was an article we read that was interviewing women truckers in the U.K., and one woman was saying that she always gets comments from other guys being like, oh, I can't believe you're straight. Like, there's all of these preconceived notions about what a trucker is supposed to look like, A, but then what a lady trucker is supposed to be. And so I just I want to tell everybody, like, relax. I want to borrow um Holly from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Uh, like, be cool, Wand. Like, everybody be cool. It doesn't matter what a human looks like if they are doing the job that they want to do. Like, just relax, everybody. <laughs> Caroline says, relax. We need to make those t-shirts. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, But if we hop back to the 1940s, Rusty Dow became the first woman to drive the Alaska Highway, and she was one tough gal. Uh, Dow had worked as a truck driver in California and then ended up operating her own trucking and transfer service. And apparently she's a big deal. She has like her own page on like Alaska's
4: history website. Well, I mean, she drove a 10 wheel Studebaker with bald tires down what is a only a quote unquote highway, like whatever highway you're on going to work. It wasn't that like it was the wilderness. And she talked about how she overheard some dude truckers saying, oh, yeah, you know, if they ever make this trail easy enough for women to travel, like, we know it'll be time to to find another job to move on. Oh, so patronizing.
1: <laughs> um, but today, though, the industry is on the hunt for more women like Luella Bates. And here's the big industry pitch to women. The big thing that they often advertise is how, women, you can make money, money, money. So in pretty much any trucking story you read, it'll mention how 38000 is the median pay, and there are long-haul truckers who can pull in up to $75,000 a year. And many spokespeople insist that truckers can start raking in that cash in only a few weeks, which sounds great. Sounds amazing. Yeah.
4: Why are we podcasting? I have no idea. Can we podcast from a truck? I think so. And of course, they also tell the fact that you are paid by the mile or by the load so that there's no spe- gender specific wage gap. If there's a gap, it's because you're not driving as much as others which, of course, will come into play when we talk about um, retaliation by companies. But anyway, I don't want to like give too many spoilers away, of course. A lot of companies also tout that the job is physically easier than ever before. You've got uh, technological innovations, power steering, automatic transmissions. You've got people trying to make sleeper cabs more comfortable and ergonomic so it can accommodate all types of body sizes. Um, and, and that includes making driver's seats even women-friendly to accommodate smaller frames. And one aspect of a job that's often advertised specifically to women
1: is how you can haul what's called no-touch cargo that doesn't demand any heavy lifting whatsoever.
4: And as far as I'm concerned, these are improvements
1: for everyone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um And trucking companies are making intentional changes to attract women, not just the, the technological innovations for the trucks themselves. They're trying to clean up truck stops. They're actually putting showers in the women's bathrooms at truck stops because for a long time there were only showers in the men's bathrooms. So I'm sure that was very welcoming. Uh Offering guaranteed home time because you were on the road a lot, not surprisingly, and also just directly marketing to potential women with messages of freedom, seeing the country. Your truck is your home and your office. You can be the mistress of your own mobile domain.
4: All of this sounds fantastic. It does. What could possibly go wrong? So the thing is, regardless of who you are, man, woman, young, old, driving a truck, especially long haul. Is tiring. It's dangerous. It's often cited as one of the top 10 most dangerous occupations in the world. And it's lonely and underpaid. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think 14 hour days and the fact that trucking accidents account for 12 percent of all work-related deaths in the U.S., and there's been a huge issue of that um, underpaid aspect. And, I mean, you are working on a strict schedule, so you might be driving for these long stretches at a time. I mean, there are regulations as to, I think, 14 hours is the max. Truckers listening, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But there's also... No unionization. And so these truckers have little power to fight for better compensation because they're doing such important work. That's like the,
4: you know, the foundation of a lot of our economy. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, Desiree Wood, who we cited earlier as the founder of Real Women Trucking, does work to highlight these issues because You know, if you definitely want to be a trucker or you're just thinking about it, she believes and I agree with that you should know the risks and rewards. And she points out with that whole underpaid thing that there is a lot of unpaid labor that goes into being a trucker since you're only paid per mile or per load when you're driving. So you've got time spent standing on the dock to count freight. You might end up being detained at a shipper or receiver for hours past your appointment. And you've got to spend time climbing up inside that trailer to clean them out before you load them up. And there's also the issue with local jobs, which
1: are the ones that are often guaranteed involving a lot more unpaid work, according to Desiree Wood at least, um, than long haul. And then beyond that, there's the issue of no industry-wide training standards, which means some trucking schools will exploit students with excessive team driving and try to lock them into lease purchase deals for a truck, landing them in debt. So you have to pay your tuition to even get into this school so you can get a trucking license. And some of these schools will try to get you to, you know, lock you into this lease and if you even make it out of the school, as we'll talk about in just a second. Um, so before you're even making any money, you're spending a lot of money sometimes. I mean, this is just Wood is putting this information out there just as a buyer beware, like study your school before you sign up for it.
4: Yeah. And she also points out that you're generally not going to be making that 40 K right out of the gate. You're. Probably more likely to earn about 18 to 37,000 when you first become a trucker. And many women behind the wheel often
1: confront gender stereotypes and ridicule and even harassment mm-hmm. as a part of the job as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, we've already talked about how it seems like every article has to mention the appearance. I'm like, oh, my God, you can't be a driver because you're wearing a skirt. But there's also all of these gender assumptions that Kristen and I have talked about in previous STEM episodes about like, oh, well, you're a woman, so you probably didn't play with Legos enough, so you have no spatial reasoning skills. You can't drive, and you're probably not strong enough to do any of this work. And, of course... That's all a bunch of hooey.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was to the point that um in an article over at the BBC, Shamim Akhtar, who's Pakistan's only female professional truck driver, uh, she said that she basically has to divorce herself from her womanhood in order to do this
4: job. Yeah, my eyes got so wide when I read that because she was essentially saying, um, you know, I pray that women who want to stay home can afford to stay home because I know that when I'm on the road, I have to kill the woman inside of me. And you're like, oh, my God, like that goes against kind of everything that we preach in terms of like, be who you are, like be a proud lady if that's who you are, (laughs) even if you're a trucker or because you're a trucker, like, you know, be authentically yourself and um Shami Akhtar definitely has a different coping mechanism for facing the type of harassment that comes along with being a lady trucker in Pakistan. Yeah, I mean,
1: and of course, a lot of women truckers just, I mean, the the stereotyping, they just kind of have to let it roll off their backs. But understandably, it can wear you down a bit. And mm-hmm. men and women alike, turnover in the industry is huge. The American Trucking Association in 2015 celebrated a record low of 84% annual turnover. Yeah,
4: mind blown. And the more frequent stat you see is 100%. Yeah. Which, in case you're not sure what 100% turnover means, it means that everyone is leaving. Responding to this discussion, one NPR commenter said, well, consider the pay and the fact that you're on the road, away from home and family for weeks and months at a time, living out of the truck, eating on the road, not working a set schedule, but available for work at any hour of the day or night in any weather. And should I add sleep deprived? And he goes on to say it's not just a job, but a lifestyle. And it's not suitable for most people like and he's not talking gender. He's like talking whoever you are. It might not be your kind of work. Yeah, um I, I forget the exact source,
1: but I was reading an article about Both the psychological and physical toll that Mm -hmm. truck driving, especially long haul truck driving takes, because I mean, think about if you have a desk job, how often we're told, you know, you make sure you stand up sitting is killing us. sitting is killing you stand up every hour. If you're a trucker, you can't do that. You are sitting in that fixed position for hours on end and sometimes by yourself. Although I am heartened to know that we are offering
4: at least some podcast company to truckers out there. Yeah. And there are people who drive in teams. Mm -hmm. There are lots of husband and wife teams out there, which I didn't realize. But so that could at least let you switch off and keep driving. But more often than not, you're still driving that 12 hour shift, let's say. So, and your spouse or your partner, whoever's in the cab with you, will then take the next 12 hour shift. So it's not like you're switching off every hour necessarily.
1: Yeah. But then on top of that too, let's say you get hungry. It's time for dinner. Uh if you've noticed the immediate food options that are closest to the road are usually not all that good for you. I mean you have gas station food, you have yeah, and even, fast food. I
4: mean even if you get like a a nice roast chicken and some potatoes and carrots, like how are you going to eat eat yeah. that when you know when you've got to be somewhere in a certain set amount of time. Yeah. So um but he, on top of all of these Issues
1: which I I personally think the industry needs to take a closer look at, or at least compensate their employees better for. Um, We next need to talk about the biggest road hazard for women behind the wheel. And we're going to dive into that when we get right back from a quick break.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
2: Into this
1: research, Caroline, I mean, I was prepared to read about safety and sexual assault issues for women on the road, assuming that you're alone. If you have to stay at a truck stop, stranger danger, that it's, it's all happening there after you've gotten the job, once mm-hmm. you're in the industry. But it turns out that the major sexual harassment problem within the trucking industry takes place most often during training. Yeah.
4: Yeah. uh, I was so horrified to read about this and so glad to be reading about it because it seems like nobody wants to talk about it, especially, I mean, especially recruiters. Uh, I mean, as you can imagine, why would they want to highlight anything like that? Um, But we, we tend to focus so much on sexism in the workplace on issues of promotion and gender wage gaps and we of course sexual harassment and sexual assault but this it's the issue is so concentrated it seems like in the trucking industry um, and sexual harassment and we're not just talking like a slap on the butt or like hey hot thing you want to have sex it's like vi- there's violent sexual harassment going on and it's one of the major complaints that Desiree Wood who started real women trucking hears from people.
1: yeah because what typically happens during driver training when you're training to get your trucking license, you have to drive in teams for a set amount of time. So you'll be driving you know with someone who's your trainer but a lot of times those trainers are not in official positions of authority. So this often leads to sketchy situations that deter some women from completing training school, which lands them in debt. Um, and we've got to talk about the, these cases that have now, I mean, that are already like in court. So in May 2015, three lead plaintiffs filed a federal class action suit against CRST expedited trucking, alleging sexual harassment, assault and rape during training. And according to the lawsuit, this issue is so well known and brushed aside in the industry that CRST is jokingly referred to as constantly raping student truckers.
4: Yeah, I mean, we read stories about women having to carry knives, tasers, even screwdrivers as weapons to fend off abusive trainers, women talking about waking up in their bunk in the middle of the night and having a naked man on top of them all sorts of insane scenarios. And like Kristen was just saying, you're sort of locked in because if you leave the CRST training, for instance, early because of sexual assault or sexual harassment, you wind up with tuition debt because so they'll front you some tuition money, but they will only forgive that debt. If you pass your training and then sign an 8 month commitment after graduating. And so, you know, we read about all of these women who were saying that, you know, I held on by the skin of my teeth dealing with all of this horrifying stuff and still couldn't make it. I still had to be dropped off at a at a terminal or a truck stop and ask for help. Yeah, because this uh I mean the, the
1: training environment with the the co-driving for weeks at a time sometimes sets the stage for coercion because Trainers might threaten not to pass them as a way to, you know, try to lure them into unwanted sexual activity. And lawyers told Fast Company magazine that when women sue CRST due to sexual harassment, the company is known to counterclaim to recover the cost of training. And then there seems to be a particular issue with. This trucking company Um, and also I want to give a shout out to a really in-depth piece over at Jezebel, um, where a lot of this information is coming from as well.
4: Yeah. And coming from that Jezebel article, there was actually a case in 2011 when CRST lost a lawsuit. Uh, They had to pay a driver $1.5 million because she alleged that her trainer, this guy named John Wilson, subjected her to constant sexual comments and touching and that her reports to the corporate office were ignored. And we hear this over and over again, all the stuff we read, that it doesn't matter what you've experienced and who you tell. It tends to get laughed off and just brushed under the rug. And again, it
1: it does seem to be an issue with this particular company and how it has gone on for so long boggles my mind because if we go back to 2007, there was a case brought to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, alleging 72 women, 72, at CRST complained of sexual harassment in 2005 alone. Yeah. Just in one year. And that case was eventually dissolved because of uh, there were like bureaucratic steps that weren't taken. Um, But the thing about it is as Jezebel and fast company reported, what typically happens to the trainers in these situations is not much. They may have their pay docked and they're typically shuffled around to different students like training students labeled as uh, just having quote personality problems.
4: Yeah. But you as the person being trained, you don't know Who has personality problems? And you don't know if it's just like, oh, they don't brush their teeth, so they're kind of smelly. Mm -hmm. Or if it's because they tried to rape someone. Right. And then the company
1: is saying, okay, get in the car, get in a truck with this person that you're going to have to sleep on the road with in these tiny sleeper cabs. And at truck stops and out in the middle of nowhere. Go ahead. Just go on the open road for a few weeks.
4: Yeah. And a lot of women... Uh, in these articles brought up the point that many of the trainers that they worked with were recently out of prison. And no, there is nothing wrong with that in a vacuum. However, just like we don't know what these personality problems on these charts indicate, if a man went to prison for rape or sexual assault, and then he becomes a trainer and he's locked in a cab with this woman for three weeks at a time, that's a dangerous situation. It seems like pertinent information you would
1: you would want to know yeah. as a student. Um and one thing that both Fast Company and Jezebel pointed out about this is how this issue of sexual assault within or sexual harassment within the trucking industry is just it's so stunning to the to a greater degree than the issue of sexual harassment in Silicon Valley. Yet we hear about Silicon Valley and the issues um, within the tech industry so much more often. And I think it was the writer in, in Fast Company saying that it, this is a clear issue of class discrimination.
4: Yeah, you know, it, exactly. Um Reflecting on the Fast Company stats, the Jezebel writer said it's hard to miss the class element that's likely at work, a greater interest in the suffering of women in a money flush, very public, buzz heavy industry. And although trucking is a core part of how the American economy functions, there's a general ignorance about how it works a lack of visibility that's benefited some in the trucking industry and hurt many others. And of course, this isn't to create some kind of
1: hierarchy of like, which sexual harassment should we care about more? Mm -hmm. But the fact that we aren't more informed about this is troubling. And it's even more troubling when you think about proposed safety solutions, because a lot of times it's left up to the women themselves. Carry weapons. Install a camera in your truck. Don't park in the back of a parking lot at a truck stop or walk between trucks. That is one piece of advice. Don't walk between trucks.
4: And it's also troubling in the context of these super strong recruiting efforts that are going on now. It's like, yeah, it's I'm always an advocate for getting more women into positions where they can make a steady living, support themselves and or their families, feel empowered, do what they want to do. However, I think it's a little shady when you're recruiting strongly a group of people who are at an incredible statistical risk of sexual violence. Like we should probably be following Desiree Wood's lead would of real women trucking and trying to inform ourselves and women at large about these issues, especially when the
1: question of sexual harassment comes up if you're talking to someone with closer industry ties they're usually like oh yeah i mean we definitely need to fix that problem now now that more women are coming into the job we should absolutely look into it and it's like wait so it was fine you know five ten twenty years ago
4: like yeah and and you know, we, we read a lot. There were, again, a lot of comments on these articles from, from women who've been in trucking for a while who've said, You know, I experienced nothing but politeness. I was treated with respect. You know, the worst I ever had to deal with was surprise that a woman was doing this job. And to them, I say, congratulations. Like, that's great. I think it's fabulous that you're getting to do this job and make this money and not have to deal with this. But that positive experience doesn't discount the horrifically negative experience that so many women have had.
1: Yeah. I mean, and this is one reason why you do see a lot of husband wife. Duos a because then you get to, like, hang out together, but also for safety's sake. I mean, it helps to have a guy that, you know, and trust in the truck with you. But I mean, it it seems like if you are a a female trucker, you often take the good with the bad. Mm -hmm. Um, This was something reflected in a number of uh, comments on a BBC article we read. Um, Rebecca Horsfall Uh, said, I was a lorry driver 25 years ago when it was really abnormal for women to drive trucks. The porn photos all over the walls of depots where I picked up or dropped off machine parts and cables were incredible because no women ever went there. And of course, the men were sexist. They were always trying to take over loading my wagon or roping it for me because they didn't believe I could manage. But it had its fun sides, too.
4: Yeah, and it's funny because that just reminded me of when we talked about pinup girls and men having in, in any industry, not just trucking men, having all of these sexy pinup calendars all over the place and how in so many other episodes where we've discussed men being so reluctant to welcome women into a previously or currently male dominated field because it's like, oh, wait, you expect me to act like a person like that's crazy. I have to act like a normal human being.
1: But I do want to end the episode on a positive note, because there were women we read about, including Desiree Wood, who enjoy trucking. It's just clear that it's it, it regardless of who you are. It is a particular a very particular kind of lifestyle that not yeah. a lot of people are cut out for. Um But Lindsay Williams commented over the BBC Uh, I've had a class one license for about 24 years. My childhood was spent on the family farm and I was driving a tractor at 11 years old. So I guess that's how I started. I drive a big rig and it's given me confidence and self-esteem. And it gives me a chance to see the country and appreciate nature. I've earned the respect of my driving colleagues. And it's a wonderful feeling to know that I've earned their respect. But the bad bits are I hate being in big queues of stationary traffic.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I hear ya. Like uh I I driving in Atlanta, I lose my mind every time I'm in traffic. But also I watch how the idiots and jerks in Atlanta drive around truckers and I I can't imagine it. Like hello, they are driving a massive vehicle that weighs a lot. You can't just cut them off in Atlanta traffic on I-75 in the middle of rush hour. And expect your car to be in one piece when you do it. Like, I I feel like I just want a bumper sticker that's like, I love truckers because I will always let them in the lane. If they have a blinker on, I will let them over because so many people in Atlanta are so awful to truckers. Uh,
1: and yet again, Caroline, we need, we need to make those Caroline says relax T-shirts so you can, you know, throw it, throw in those passenger seats as you're driving by them.
4: Yes, I know. Everybody just relax. It doesn't matter what you look like <laughs> in general, period. So the takeaway. <laughs> um, so clearly, this is an
1: industry looking for a lot of women, um, but it needs to make some major reforms in order for that to be sustainable. Yeah, and,
4: and I don't I appreciate people like our listener, Greg, who wrote in wanting us to talk about this issue, because people like Ellen Voy have pointed out. That so many people still just like flat out don't want women in the industry and don't think they should be there, which I think is so it's so ridiculous when there are so many open jobs in trucking. Women who get into the industry are literally taking nothing away from men. They're literally taking nothing away because the job is open. There are tens of thousands of unfilled trucking jobs. So. I I would frankly love to hear from our trucker audience. I need I need to know some more firsthand stuff.
1: Well, and also I I want to hear from men and women too because, as listener Greg demonstrates, I mean there are obviously men in this industry who are you know perfectly great people who realize that there's a problem mm-hmm. and are invested in in helping solve it too so i'm just so curious to know because there are so many issues there's the pay issue there's health there's you know um employee organization um so i just i'm just curious to hear from from folks on the road what it's really like what's been your experience at momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break
2: Here
4: from Sarah in response to our miscarriage episode. Sarah writes, I've wanted to write you for a while, but when I saw your new podcast pop up, I figured now was the time. Last year, my baby was stillborn at 38 weeks. Doctors told us pretty early on that there were some problems with my placenta. I learned that when they tell you you have a thick placenta, it's not meant as a compliment. Oops. But we ran every test possible and everything always looked fine, so we planned for the best and never assumed that the worst would happen. While it was and still can be a deeply sad time, something that helped me to avoid a lot of the guilt and shame you described was asking my doctor a lot of questions about why it happened. I found that understanding at least some of the science steered me away from the magical thinking that Dr. Zucker described and gave me a concrete reason for why it happened. It also helped soften the blow when people inevitably told me, everything happens for a reason I could respond in my head with yes and the reason is that sometimes cells don't divide normally creating a challenging environment in which to sustain a healthy baby it didn't make the loss of my daughter any less devastating but it at least gave me an answer to the big question of why something so horrible could happen science happens what really resonated with me is when Dr. Zucker talked about people not knowing how to approach you after such a loss After the initial, I'm sorry for your loss, people would tell me that they didn't want to bring it up because they didn't want to remind me, which basically meant that it almost never came up again. I knew in my head that I wasn't forgotten and she wasn't forgotten, but it sure felt like that and made me feel very alone. One thing that I would like to tell people who want to be there for someone going through a loss is this, I'm thinking about it, whether you bring it up or not, so you might as well show your support and bring it up. I'm sure that's not true for everyone, but it was and still is very true for me. Also, just because I'm the one going through it doesn't mean I necessarily know how to approach the subject or have the language to talk about it either. The kindest thing you could do is talk with me, even if it's uncomfortable for you, because it is way more uncomfortable for me. And it's hard to get comfortable with something you can't talk about. Anyway, when I was on quote-unquote maternity leave afterward, I was looking for things to read and listen to to occupy my brain, and that's how I found you guys. Thank you for being there for me and getting me re-engaged with the world. I'm a teacher, and your podcast always gives me ideas for topics to introduce to kids to broaden their beliefs and challenge their expectations. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We really appreciate your story. And I've got a letter here from an anonymous listener about our infertility
1: episode, and she writes... That episode stood out to me personally for a number of reasons. Though I'm only 16, the reality that I will never be able to bear children is something I was recently faced with. I developed an eating disorder at 13, which persisted in phases throughout my adolescence. The effects of malnutrition on a developing body vary, but for me, with my naturally small size and severe state of anorexia, it caused chronic amenorrhea and damage to my ovaries and uterus, as I recently learned from my gynecologist. The reality of this is heavy, and I have yet to fully comprehend it. As an abstinent teenager, I've never given much serious thought to my possible future as a mother. I guess now the decision is made for me that if I ever choose to have children, I'll have to go through alternate methods. Your episode on this topic was somewhat of a stress reliever for me on the matter and gave me lots of great information about infertility across the globe and in different cultures. I know that if or when the right time comes, my inability to conceive does not define who I am as a woman or as a person and that there are many other paths to take toward parenthood. Thank you so much for your time and dedication to talking about these topics and how they pertain to women in all walks of life. The show has certainly educated, entertained, and encouraged me to be a more inclusive and aware feminist, as well as more accepting of myself and others, and I hope this has done the same for many other fans of the show. Well, thank you so much, Anonymous. That is um, so, so kind to hear. And... Listeners, again, our email address is momstuffathowstuffworks.com. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about women in the trucking industry, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.